Hi, and welcome to the Breastfeeding Medicine Podcast. I'm your co-host, Dr. Ann Eglash. I'm a clinical professor in the Department of Family Medicine at the University of Wisconsin School of Medicine and Public Health. I'm also a board-certified lactation consultant and a co-founder of the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine. And I'm Karen Bodnar. I am an assistant professor of pediatrics at Harbor UCLA Medical Center and a general pediatrician. I'm also a board-certified lactation consultant. And this podcast is sponsored by the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine. Just so you know, the content of our podcasts does not necessarily reflect official policies or protocols of the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine. Are you ready to go? Hi, Karen. Hi, Anne. How are you doing? Good. How are you? I'm doing really well. Good, good. So um, I think we'll get started with some articles. Um, I'm going to first talk about mouse breast memory. And this is an article that was published in the um, journal called Cell Report, which is an open access journal in May of 2015. Um, It's an article by a couple authors, um, uh, Camilla Dos Santos, uh, Igor uh, Dolzhenko, I hope I didn't mass write his name, entitled An Epigenetic Memory of Pregnancy in the Mouse Mammary Gland. And the reason I was really interested in this article is because it talks, it looks at the genetic underpinnings of why women or why mammals make more milk the second time around and subsequent times compared to the first. Yeah. So, yeah, so these authors were interested in understanding why mammals make more milk with the second and subsequent babies as compared to the first baby. So all of us pretty much know that the breasts have these these glands, so they're... um, within the fat or the, is glandular tissue that grows and res- in, in development in response to the hormones that come from the pregnancy, particularly from the placenta. And the question is whether there's a different sort of response that occurs with the second and subsequent pregnancies compared to the first. So the authors actually report that the structure of the breast after weaning looks indistinguishable from the from that of women who've never been pregnant, which I was not aware of. I thought that the glandular tissue would look different, but according to them, in mice anyway, you can't look at a breast histologically under a microscope and tell if they've had pups or not, which to me floored me. So they were wondering what the difference is between developing the first time and developing the second time if there isn't like that infrastructure already laid down after the first Um, pregnancy. So they took mice who previously had pups and compared them to mice who never were pregnant. And they artificially induced pregnancy by um, implanting slow-release estrogen and progesterone pellets. They then sacrificed the the mice on day 6 and day 12 after starting those hormones. And they found that the mice who had previous pups had a greater amount of breast tissue earlier than the mice who had never been pregnant. And they also found milk proteins existing in breasts earlier in the mice who had previous pups than the, than the mice who never had pups, meaning that they started to make milk even earlier, which, would, which is interesting because then you wonder, well, if moms have premature infants, are they more likely to have more milk earlier, like at 28 weeks, compared to a mother who has, this is her first baby? which is something I don't know if I've ever seen articles on. And so they conclude that 
that there are gen that there are genes that are involved in breast development and milk production during pregnancy and that there's a memory created which allows those genes to respond faster and more elaborately to subsequent pregnancies. So it's just like a kind of a beginning, it's kind of like a, you know, beginning article looking at this whole issue, trying to understand it, and then moving forward to get more information, trying to figure out exactly how that works. Yeah. Fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. So now we can say with certainty that there's evidence, you know, that there's a genetic component to it. So that's pretty cool. All right. Well, um, we're going to move away from the basic sciences. Okay. I wanted to talk about an article from um, this month, September 2015's Breastfeeding Medicine, and it was titled, Effect of a Quality Improvement Project to Use Exclusive Mother's Own Milk on Rate of Necrotizing Enterocolitis in Preterm Infants. And that was um, from Al-Sheikh Kosteki. Blatchley and Yi from Alberta, Canada. So just to remind any listeners who are not familiar, necrotizing enterocolitis is um, sometimes called neck. It's a medical condition primarily seen in premature infants where portions of the bowel undergo necrosis or tissue death. And it's the second most common cause of death in premature infants. In this study, the authors remind us that using an infant's mother's own milk remains the key strategy to prevent necrotizing enterocolitis in preterm infants. Um, in general, using breast milk, um, but in um, North America, it is m generally much easier to have access to mother's own milk than donor milk. For the study, they developed an, and implemented a quality improvement project to improve the rate of using mother's own milk in preterm infants um, less than 32 weeks in their NICU. And their objective was to evaluate the impact of this project on the incidence of neck um, in these preterm infants. So this was a retrospective study where they looked back um, to 2009. At that time, they um, created a quality improvement multidisciplinary team that reviewed the literature and practices of other institutions um, to promote exclusive use of mother's own milk in preterm infants. And the team developed practice changes that were implemented in um, February of 2010. And the use of mother's own milk and the occurrence of neck stage two or greater was tracked from the beginning of 2009 until the spring of 2012 when donor human milk was introduced, um, thus eliminating the need for formula for babies whose mothers didn't have enough um, milk, enough of their mother's own milk. The subjects were divided into a baseline year, the 2009, the intervention phase, and the sustaining phase. And the clinical outcomes were comparing the baseline to the sustain phase. The authors used a plan, do, study, act methodology for QI, often called the PDSA, and the practice changes were developed and implemented sequentially. And so this multidisciplinary team reviewed literature and they identified the best methods to improve maternal lactogenesis in the early postpartum period. Um, the specific practices they utilized were um, sharing with nursing staff and lactation consultants the um, idea of early pumping and expression, the importance of hand expression with hands-on pumping, um, having frequent pumping, 
at least every three hours during the day and at least once at night, emphasizing the value of colostrum, sort of this every drop counts mentality, and education about the importance and protective effects of breast milk on infants. Um, the materials were distributed through the LCs and educational materials were made at patient level. Um, what I thought was really interesting getting into sort of their, their methodology for this QI project was that initially to facilitate early collection of colostrum, their goal was contact of, with the LC for each mother within 6 to 12 hours postpartum. Mm-hmm. And, and that's pretty late, I think. You know, yeah. It's not a super um, high goal. No. So given the limited availability of their LCs, even reaching that goal was challenging. So in subsequent cycles, nurses were educated to um, be able to provide early bedside consultation to these moms. Um, the NICU nurses were the first group targeted, and then subsequently they moved on to um, antepartum nurses as well as labor and delivery nurses. Um, and eventually LC consultations were offered to antepartum inpatient women who were at risk of preterm labor. So the results of the QI project showed that the exclusive use of mom's own milk improved significantly from 60% to 73% at the time of the first feed without any delay in feed introduction. And this is really important because um, studies have shown us that starting really early trophic feeds, which is just a very, very, very small amount to prime the gut. So one ml or two mls every hour every three hours um, can help prevent um, infection from um, sort of colonizing and so they didn't want to delay feeds if there wasn't mom's milk they also found that there was not a significant increase um, or excuse me they found that there was a non-significant increase in exclusive use of mom's own milk at the time of full feeding it did go up from 79.5% to 85%, um, but it wasn't significant. However, the use of any breast milk at discharge increased significantly from 80% to 91%. Oh, that's good. Wow, that's great. So that, considering they started out at a pretty high rate of any breast milk at discharge, the fact that they increased by 10, over 10% was impressive. Yeah. Um, And, and sometimes, you know, we find that just sort of suggesting to people, even if we're not doing a study, but you ask the question, are you doing this intervention? People start scrubbing the hub longer or doing those other things they're supposed to be doing because they're reminded, oh, we're supposed to be working on this. Yeah, right. So um, the time to reach full feed and the length of stay remained um, similar in the two periods. So this intervention didn't cause sort of um, bad outcomes that um, the authors were looking for. And on regression analysis, the risk of neck decreased significantly in the sustained period um, with an odds ratio of 0.32. So a significant decrease in neck occurred with this intervention. Wow, that's great. Yeah, it was really awesome. So they concluded that, you know, QI initiatives are effective in increasing the use of exclusive mom's own milk at time of first feed and at um, any use of mom's milk at time of discharge as well as reducing neck in the ICU. Mm-hmm. Interesting. You know, so um, this is one of those advantages of using electronic medical records when you're doing QI. If you have the electronic medical team or the IT team or whoever is doing um, all the um, 
uh, the programming of the electronic medical record, just putting it in, you know, so there's a hard stop for nurses. Did mom express by two hours, you know, yes or no, and then just audit it. It's so, I think that our, the quality of care that we can provide, especially in breastfeeding, can really be improved by using electronic medical record for that kind of stuff. Otherwise, you know, you can go through a QI project and do this stuff for a while, but then it kind of peters out as the enthusiasm wanes. But if you have those hard stops and those criteria that you have to meet and you have to document in the electronic medical record, then it kind of becomes the standard of care where, you know, yes, of course you document it because if you document that you didn't, then you get audited and you get dinged. So, yeah, that's... that's no, It's absolutely yeah. true. When yeah. you have the ability to have those in, because... You know, I was involved in a QI project in California, and it was super frustrating because a lot of the EMR didn't have the questions that we wanted to then go back and look at. Right, right. Or it was a, a free response type in, you know, what is the baby being fed? And at the four-month well-child check, if nobody puts in, you know, right. really specifically they were breastfed or they're fed pumped milk or they were dual fed, you can't later mine that data. Right. And so that's where the engineering comes in to um to the programming to change the um what's what what is asked mm -hmm. and so that's what we have done when we um did our baby friendly um update so we became baby friendly i think in 2005 at our hospital and so then we had to do our 10-year update recertification and so one of the things that we did for qi is we um we document we showed how we could improve pumping within two hours after delivery um, for moms that are separated from babies. And the way we did it is that we met with the Epic team and we said, okay, you need to build this in to one of the routine, you know, cares that the nurses do right immediately postpartum. That's a great, and it worked great. Yeah. yeah. And then we could, and then we could measure it and it was, and it was quite effective because we got moms pumping way earlier. And so it's very, now I no longer in my lactation clinic do I hear from women who say to me, you know what? No one ever came in and offered me a pump when my baby went to the NICU. You know, they're like, oh yeah, I started pumping within the first two hours. And so it's made a huge difference um, in terms of getting those moms connected right away. That's cool. Yeah. So that was, that's interesting. Yeah. Well, it'd be nice if all hospitals could do that. If we could, you know, even rec even get all neonatologists to recognize the importance of human milk. <laughs> I see I see emails sometimes that are like trying to define what is necessary for an EMR to be sort of certified as a pediatric friendly EMR. Oh, um, mm -hmm. because there are things that we care about in pediatrics that adults don't care about, like right. growth charts and vaccines, and you know they do to some extent, but not not the way that we do. And no. so I've had a lot of thoughts about. What are the really critical, because you don't want to make it onerous or people are just going to get fed up and, you know, not do it. But what are the really critical things that have to do with breastfeeding that should be in this criteria for EMR? Right. And so that it'll be possible for us to go back and look and say, hey, look, these babies were exclusively breastfed for six months. Exactly. isn't being captured now in general. No, it, it's true. In our, in Epic, in our, in, in our system, it's not captured. You have to, you have to mine the data, you know, by hand, unfortunately. Yeah. So, um, all right, well, that's, that's interesting. So I have an article that was published in Breastfeeding Medicine in two, um, just like a couple months ago in 2015 um, entitled Maternal Neuroendocrine Serum Levels in Exclusively Breastfeeding Mothers, um, authored by Allison Stubbe, 
Samantha Melzer Brody, Brenda Pearson, and others. So this is a really, I think this is a really important study clinically because they basically measure what are the normal, what are the expected prolactin levels for women who are exclusively nursing, when they're not nursing, during nursing and after nursing, and then also looking at thyroid function over the course of eight weeks. So they basically just wanted to further define these levels because most studies that have been done on prolactin levels in nursing women were done more than 20 years ago. So these levels were not done with current assay tools. Mm -hmm. Uh, They weren't necessarily well-defining breastfeeding. Uh, There were hospital barriers to frequent feeding. So things are just a lot different. Uh, There was a study that was published in 2009 by Pamela Hill that looked at prolactin levels in moms of term versus preterm infants. And it found that the basal level, which is the the baseline prolactin level when she's not nursing, and the post-stimulation prolactin level, which is the prolactin level immediately after nursing, both of them decreased over time postpartum, um, which, which is consistent with what we think happens in that the breast goes from being endocrine to autocrine, which means that the breast as an endocrine gland respond to the external stimulation of hormones. So prolactin comes to the breast and is the whip master that says, get going, keep making that milk, let's get moving. And then at some point, the breasts don't really have to listen to prolactin anymore. And they're autocrine. They're just making the milk as they see fit, not paying attention to other hormones as much and um, respond to the signals of, um, of emptying, you know, frequency of feeding and emptying. And so, uh, so Pam, so Dr. Hill's work, you know, was consistent with that, but we just needed more information. So, so the current study measured thyroid and prolactin levels in nursing participants who were breastfeeding exclusively at both two weeks and eight weeks. So they recruited 52 women, so kind of a small study, in the third trimester, of which 33 of those women ended up exclusively nursing at two weeks, and 29 of them were exclusively nursing at eight weeks. So anyone who wasn't exclusively nursing, they didn't, they didn't study. Um, the population was mostly white and college-educated. So what they did is they put in an IV, and they measured the prolactin levels, measuring at rest, which is their basal level when they're not nursing, 10 minutes into feeding while they're still nursing, and then 10 minutes after the feeding was over. So in terms of thyroid function, they found that thyroid function gradually decreased from two weeks to eight weeks, but it still stayed within that corridor of normal. So that wasn't, you know, I'm not quite sure why they looked at thyroid function because I don't think of that as necessarily, you know, I think of that as being normal unless they have some sort of thyroiditis of some sort. Um, But the... um, the prolactin level, they found that the basal prolactin level, which is, again, the level at which, you know, when moms are not nursing, um, was on average about 124 um, at two weeks, and it was 68 at eight weeks. So that basal level gradually drifted down by by even eight weeks. And the ratio from um, pre to post-feeding um, was about 1.5 at two weeks, and 2.3 at eight weeks. So that means that if they measure the prolactin level before she sits down to nurse and then 10 minutes after nursing, at two weeks, the level went up by 1.5%, 1.5. So if it was 100 before she started nursing, 
then it was 150 10 minutes after nursing. And then at eight weeks, the difference was much greater. It was 2.3 times greater. So the basal level um, was, um, so if the basal level was 100, it would at eight weeks jump up to like 230 um, at eight weeks. Um, so that's mainly because the, the, the women, their basal level was lower and they didn't like probably put all that energy into keeping that prolactin higher on a constant level. They allowed it to drift down and then just be much more responsive when, whenever mom nursed starting at around eight weeks. So, um, the more often the baby was fed, the greater the basal prolactin level, um, but um, at eight weeks, the, that, the rise in the prolactin level after nursing was less for the mothers who fed more often. So if the mothers fed more often, their basal level was higher, but then they didn't see as much of a rise um, after nursing if their basal level was higher. So we don't really know what the significance of that is. The bottom line is that um, what I think is interesting in that particular statement is that the more often mothers nursing the higher the basal prolactin level. So, and that... I wonder what the half-life is of that hormone. Yeah, it's probably pretty short, is my guess. Um, Yeah, because it goes up and then, you know, because, you know, look, it goes down pretty... Yeah, it goes down pretty quickly. Um, The other thing for... um, What's interesting is that some of these moms, all these moms, their babies were growing well, I should clarify. They were exclusively nursing, so they had sufficient milk supplies... But there were a couple moms whose prolactin levels were basically considered, you know, in the normal range for a woman who's not nursing. So one woman had a prolactin level less than 20. Um, And uh, the lowest baseline basal rate at two weeks was 32 and at eight weeks was nine. And again, these women were functioning fine. And did it say if they were primips or? No, it didn't say. They actually didn't I know there wasn't any difference makes me think back to your first study and wonder how this all plays in with the right exactly babies and how it varies if you've had you know a subsequent pregnancy right so interesting yeah and then the lowest prolactin level during nursing like measured during nursing was 45 at two weeks and only 20 at eight weeks so here the woman's actually nursing and her prolactin level is really low at two weeks and she's still making enough milk so you know, that's interesting, too, um, in terms of what does it mean to measure levels these days? It, it really yeah. makes me scratch my head. Like, I'm not sure what it means because this is also a really small study. So, you know, maybe the mothers who have normal prolactin levels really, you know, that's not their issue, that they're hypoprolactinemic. Yeah. Um, it, it also makes me wonder a little bit about some of the galactagogues we use and... Right. How it is that that's making a difference. Yes, yes. But the only, but one thing that was said is that um, the prolact, for all of these moms, um, everyone had an elevated prolactin level after nursing. So um, if the, um, so if the, if the prolactin level is likely to be, um, so, yeah, basically what, what they're saying is that the prolactin level is going to be elevated after nursing. So the lowest prolactin level after nursing was 57 at two weeks and 74 at eight weeks. So it's interesting that sometimes it was higher hmm. after nursing than during nursing. And so maybe that's just, 
I don't know. I, I'm not quite sure why that is. Or maybe it just is telling the breast to, you know, make more milk, like get ready for the next time that mm-hmm. she's going to nurse. But the bottom line is that it would make sense based on this data that the best time to measure prolactin levels is right after nursing, which is what I do. I don't actually measure prolactin. I don't have moms nurse and try to draw blood while they're nursing. I always have them like nurse <laughs> and then... Mean. No, no, I don't. No, I don't. No, no, I mean, it would. If you were to do it that way, I'd be like, oh, exactly. negative, negative yeah. stimulation. Yeah, I mean, really. Yeah, I, yeah, it's a, just too much. And plus, it's hard to time it because my lab tech might be busy and I don't want to say, hurry up, hurry up. She's still nursing and then the baby <laughs> pops off. And so it doesn't oh, make sense. I... But when she's done, then um, I have the, my lab tech draw her blood. But, it, you know, it, once again, it sort of sticks with me like how there isn't necessarily a uniform way of doing this. Like, you know, if you're going to see the kidney doctor and you're going to get your renin measured, there's, where they sitting? Where they standing? Where they laying down? Right. We have the same problem with a lack of, of standard ways to do this. And so I think that definitely from this study, having this sort of out there of like, yes, doing it after they're done, let's all do it that way. I love this plan. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, for me, it just, I don't know. I mean, I'm glad that I've been doing it that way because that's what this evidence is showing. This is also a small study, so I think we need a lot more work. But the funny thing is, is that this is like some of the most basic information that we need that we don't have enough information on. When we're trying to assess, does someone have hypophysitis? Do they have, do they have Sheen syndrome? You know, what's going on with the pituitary gland? Does it matter? Now I'm wondering, maybe it doesn't even matter to check a prolactin level and just give them down peridone anyway, you know, which I kind of do anyway, but yeah. Okay. Well, um, I don't know if you have any other comments on that. Otherwise, we will call this a day and... Um, it's, it's good. My brain is full. Good, good. All right. Well, take care and you know we'll be talking again soon. If you have any interest in the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine or any questions or comments about this podcast, please email us at abm at b as in boy, f as in frank, med.org. Thanks for listening. We'll see you in a few weeks.